Have you ever, in your journey with Christ, run into what you would possibly describe as an immovable object or an irresistible force or maybe a combination of the two? Something that you looked at and were convinced that this was the one that was going to do you in. All the others in the past, they were, they were maybe rough, but this one, this is the one that's going to stop you in your tracks. There's no getting past this problem. There's no overcoming this obstacle. This is too big. It's too intimidating. And have you ever, in those moments, made the conscious decision between handling things in your own wisdom and your own plans and your own understanding or following what God is clearly telling you to do, even though it makes no sense at all. We've all had times like that in our lives, no doubt, if we've followed Christ for more than a few weeks. Life brings many of those moments, some bigger than others, some more significant and impactful than others, for sure. There was a young married couple in the late 1950s who were doing what young married couples do. They were scratching and clawing and making ends meet and trying to get by as best they could with three young children, and God was knocking on their heart's door to leave the familiarities of home and to go to a foreign mission field, a very rough place back then. This man was physically handicapped, only adding to the complexity of this call. Well-meaning friends and family advised them not to do this. This was a very unwise decision for anyone in their position. Surely God could use them just as much if they stayed here. Why, after all, would a handicapped man with a young wife and three small children want to risk moving to the outback of Australia, of all places? This was a huge decision. And this family decided, rather than leaning on their own understanding, that they would, I don't even like to use this phrase, but I'm, I'm limited sometimes on my ability to try to speak in God's language, but they, they took a risk. They risked everything. And they stepped out and they relocated to the other side of the world, knowing really no one. Literally <clears throat> getting off the plane and praying, okay, God, what now? What's the next move? A few years later, I was born into that family. And I have had the incredible privilege of being a part of that family all my life and watching God do astounding things in the face of immovable obstacles. Praying, God, literally, God, where do we go from here? What do we do next? And God would send someone along to them and say, God told me to come and speak to you. Do you need a place to stay? Why, yes, we do. This happened again and again and again. Not because they were smarter than other people, not because they had more contacts and influence than other people, not because even they had more theological learning than other people, but because they chose again and again in those moments when faced with obstacles and opposition and uncertainty, they chose to step out and follow God regardless of whether it made sense to their brain or not. God has, since those early days, graciously chosen to use my parents 
to minister around the world to hundreds of thousands of people. There have been untold thousands by God's grace who've come into the kingdom of God. We come today to such an encounter in the Bible. Last week in Joshua chapter 5, we saw that before God would allow the Israelites to move forward and claim the land that he had promised them, they first had to stop and deal with the disobedience that they had been tolerating in their lives. I won't go back and recap all of that for you for time's sake. That was the first step in preparing them to move forward into this battle, to face this immovable object that lay in front of them called Jericho. And then at the end of chapter 5, we get this little glimpse, and we certainly don't have all the details, but we get this little glimpse of the second way that God prepared them for this battle. And I want to just touch on this quickly before we focus on chapter 6 this morning. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It says this, when, now remember, the people are camped at Gilgal. We saw that, well, last week, I guess it was. I was going to say two weeks ago. And uh, the city of Jericho is a few miles away. So now Joshua has left the camp, and he has, uh, if you will, snuck over towards enemy territory. So Joshua 5.13, when Joshua was near Jericho, it literally means beside Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now what would you do? Well, I'd probably hightail it out of the woods. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, or neither. But as captain of the army of the Lord or the host of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the ground and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? Verse 15, and the captain of the Lord's army said, to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So what we see here is that Joshua has, as I said, left the camp. He's made his way over to Jericho from where he and the people were camped. And he's probably on a, if you can call it a covert operation, to go and gather some intel on the city that they were going to have to come in confrontation with. And it was almost certainly at night. You would not think that he would be over there in broad daylight sneaking around the enemy city. He was almost certainly doing this at night. And there Joshua looks up and he sees this man standing in front of him with his sword drawn. By the way, uh, it's not a good sign to see this when you're poking around enemy territory. But Joshua boldly confronts him. Joshua is a veteran of war. We've seen this already in his life. And he wants to know if this man is a friend or a foe. I suppose if you're going to start a conversation with someone like this, that's probably a good place to begin. But he discovers to his utter amazement that this is in fact the Lord appearing to him. And it, man, we could, go, we could spend so much time on this, but I have, to, I have to move on. Otherwise, it's going to take us 80 years to get through the Bible. I'm trying to discipline myself not to teach on every single verse. But isn't it interesting, though, that the Lord doesn't say he's on Joshua's side? Wouldn't you think that would be the response? Joshua, you're my guy. You're the one I've called and commissioned back in Joshua chapter 1 to go and undertake this work. So Joshua, relax, buddy. I'm on your team. 
The Lord doesn't say that. Do we actually think God is on our team, working for our plans? He simply announces himself as the captain of the army of the Lord. So the message is clear. Hey, Joshua, don't expect me to get on board with your strategy, with your plans. Here's how this is going to work. I am simply the captain of the Lord's army, and if you want to win this battle, you got to get on board with my plans. Joshua had exactly the right response. He, he fell down in worship, a sign of humility. Can you imagine that for this mighty warrior, this fierce, battle-scarred veteran, tough guy? See, it doesn't matter who you are. God requires humility. And falling on your face to the ground before someone is a sign of humility. Joshua got that right, and then he got the second part right. He said, what is it that you want to say to me? In other words, Lord, I'm all ears. I'm listening. Tell me what the next move is. Now, folks, again, we could linger on this today, but I just want to say that's still very true for us in 2020. How often do we try to get God on board with our plans? How often do we try to even, hmm, dare I say this, look for verses in the Bible to back up what we want to do, to give us an excuse to keep on doing that thing that we know God has already told us to stop? Say, hold on, let's see here. I remember something in Ecclesiastes one time. Oh, there it is. Look, ah, see, God's excusing what I'm doing. We've got it backwards. We shouldn't open the scripture to try to find backup, to shore up and support our plans and our ideas and our agenda. We should open God's word and do what Joshua did, humble ourselves before it, fall before it, if you will, and then say, Lord, I'm listening. What is it that you want to say to me? I'm submitting myself to you and to your word. That was the secret to Joshua's success. So he had snuck over to Jericho, probably, as I said, surveying things, putting a strategy together, but he didn't push forward with his plans. He, he humbly submitted to God's plan, even though what he's about to hear is not going to make any sense. And as we turn over now to chapter 6, we see all of this unfold. Now, I want to say quickly, Joshua chapter 6 is one of those chapters in the Bible that has been taught from pulpits and Sunday school classrooms for generations, and rightly so. It's a great, exciting story of the walls of Jericho falling down, and, and of course, that's always the main focus of the chapter, how the walls fell. We're going to look at that for a minute or two or three but you know me by now. I don't want to take the path of least resistance when it comes to teaching the Word of God. There's so much more in Joshua chapter 6 that I think we completely overlook by only focusing on the physical battle that took place. And so I want us to consider that in the last half of our time this morning. Now, I'll remind you, the Israelites have just crossed over the border into the promised land and the city of Jericho now stands before them as this immovable obstacle. It was a terrifying and intimidating obstacle in their sight. And it was preventing them from advancing into the land God had for them. All they could see was an obstacle. All they could see was fear. But from God's perspective, Jericho was just, listen, one more divinely appointed obstacle that he had placed in their path to use as a lesson to teach his people another important spiritual truth. 
Oh, how often when obstacles and problems and trouble and drama and issues arise in front of us, how often do we, the first thing we do is we begin complaining. Oh God, why did you let this happen? What are you doing? Where are you? Are you not in control? God had already promised these people to give them this land. In fact, he said he had already given it to them. And the first thing they face when they cross the border is a battle. Someone once said years ago, I thought when I got saved that Satan was going to move out of town. The truth is, when I got saved, Satan moved in next door. Why? Because when we go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, we have now signed up for spiritual warfare. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if you follow Christ, he's going to remove all the problems in life for you, and everything is going to be wonderful, and you're going to always get the best parking space at the mall. Baloney! I'm so tired of that shallow, self-centered teaching. It's nonsense. You don't see that in Scripture. Whenever you see that on TV or hear that on the radio, it's made up by men. It's not God's word. Don't fall for it. Your flesh will crave for that. Oh, yes, God, I want the new this and the best that. and the... Of course your flesh wants that. Don't fall for that foolish teaching. Who ever heard of a self-centered gospel? The gospel is all about laying our lives down. The gospel is all about fighting spiritual battles. And I have great news for you. The battle is never going to ease up in this lifetime. You're never going to reach that seventh level of Scientology or whatever, you know, where you've mastered everything and now you're a, you're a Zen, you're in this Zen state. You're this, you're this guru now of Christianity and all the problems are behind you. I want to tell you something, and this may make some of you drop out. I hope it doesn't. But the truth is, the more you follow Christ, the harder the battles are going to get. So just mark it down. You're not off course. You're not doing the Christian thing wrong. It's warfare. Who in their right mind would go up to a soldier on a battlefield in some part of the world where bullets are flying and bombs are, are going off and say to him, hey, I bet you didn't expect this. Well, of course he expected it. He signed up for war. He's on the battlefield. He doesn't expect to have a tea party. And yet we Christians so often get miffed at God. When life is hard, when trouble comes, God hasn't left you. You're not off track. You're in the battle. Take up your sword. Fight. Stand. Don't retreat. These people, I'm sure many of them thought, we're finally there, man. We're finally in the promised land. I can't wait to go and put the hammock up. What a surprise Jericho was. How disheartening that must have been. History tells us that Jericho was probably the most fortified city in the world at that time. It had impressive double walls surrounding the entire city. Walls that reached up to the heavens, according to Deuteronomy 1.28 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. This was an intimidating sight for sure. Jericho was a city that simply could not be conquered. It was indestructible. 
But God had promised to fight for them. God never once said, you guys figure this out, good luck. God had promised to go before them if they obeyed him. He promised to fight this battle for them. And we see that God had already put fear into the hearts of the people of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut or shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And so now the Lord in these following verses begins to lay out his plans to Joshua of how Jericho is going to be defeated. And can I just tell you again with all reverence, this plan is laughable in human terms. If you were to take this plan to any military general in the world at any time in history and say, this is what I suggest you do for your next battle, you need to be thrown out of the office or executed on the spot. I'm not sure, depending on which general you were talking to, perhaps. This is an absolutely absurd thing we're about to hear from human terms. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do this for six days. And seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. If there's ever been a bizarre plan for battle, this was it. But the beautiful thing that we see unfolding in this chapter is that God took, Joshua took God at his word, and he stepped out in total obedience. But again, can I caution you, let's not make the mistake of thinking that when a person obeys God, everything is going to make sense and it's going to go smoothly because it's not. In fact, the plan gets even stranger and more difficult to obey in verse 10. Joshua commanded the people saying, do not shout or let your voice be heard. Don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say shout. Then you are to shout. Now, picture this. So for six days, they got up every day, and they went and they marched around the city walls of Jericho one time without saying a word. And then the verses that follow tell us that when they'd finished that, they then returned to their camp and they left Jericho alone. And they got up early the next morning, and they did the same thing the second day, and the third day, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth day for six days days. Do you not think by day four or five? I mean, come on now. They didn't know the outcome of the story. We do. We're cheating. Do you not think that maybe by day four or day five that there were maybe soldiers peering over the walls as they did in those days? It was a form of early psychological warfare. Soldiers would, would lean over the walls and, and mock their enemies, taunt them, laugh at them in order to try and intimidate them from attacking the city? Do you not think that even though the people of Jericho were, were terrified at first, that by day four or five they would just go, man, these people are nuts. They're crazy. Surely they were, they were leaning over the walls going, hey guys, great job, keep it up. We're, we're really shaking in our shoes in here. I just have to wonder how embarrassing this must have been for some of the Israelites. 
surely doubts began to creep in by day four or five. I mean, I know, I know, Joshua, I know the Lord said six days, and then on the seventh day, this thing's going to happen, but seriously, dude, this is like embarrassing. We're warriors. We're fighting men. And you're telling us not only to march around the city once a day and then go home, but to do it without saying a single word. Don't you hear, Joshua? These people are taunting us. They're yelling insults at us. Somebody even said something about my wife. Them's fighting words, and you're telling us we can't say a thing? No, not a word. Oh, there's so, so much here that I don't have time to unpack. I encourage you to pursue this for yourself. Folks, as we go through this world, we are a peculiar people. We are weird in the eyes of the world, and I don't think we need to add to that, by the way. No need to try to be weird, okay? We're already weird as Christians. But the world is often going to look at us as we follow out the plan that God has put before us. And they're going to say, what a bunch of nuts. These people are crazy. Hey, that seems to be working real good. Of course, there are times in the Christian life when our head falls and we, we get discouraged and we take all of that criticism and ridicule and mocking to heart. Sometimes maybe we even begin to wonder, am I really believing this? Like, am I really in? Because this is getting hard. The world's looking at us. And folks, in the days to come in America, unless God intervenes in a huge way, you and I are in for quite a ride in this country as Christians. We're in for quite a ride. And it's going to get harder and harder and harder for you and I to continue obeying God and marching in silence so to speak, in front of the world. We're already being mocked on the news channels. We're already being mocked by many people in leadership positions around this country. Christians have already become fools in the eyes of these people, and worse. I have no doubt this was going on with many of these people, even for some of those who perhaps started out with strong faith on day one. See, it's not so much how you start. That's important. But it's how you finish. It's how you finish. The enemy of, of our souls is never going to stop mocking us, mocking our Savior, planting seeds of doubt in our mind about, man, what we're doing really does look dumb. There's going to be plenty of opportunities for us to just pull off the road of the Christian life and call it a day. It's in those very moments that we need to redouble our efforts of getting into God's word and knowing his truth. It's in those very moments, more than any other, that we need to renew our mind in his word, that we need to remind ourselves that we've been called to walk by faith, not by sight. That's exactly what Joshua and the people did. Verse 15, Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets, and Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now skip down to verse 20. We're going to come back and pick up verses 17 to 19 next week when we look at chapter 7. Verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. 
I, I can only imagine the volume of the shout that erupted from these people who had been forced to remain silent for six days when they wanted so badly for their voice to be heard. You ever want your voice to be heard? You ever feel like you're being left out of the conversation, that you're being left out of the, the, the narrative that's taking place? Folks, sometimes it's better just to keep our mouths shut. But now came the time when the trumpets blew. Oh, and there's so much significance there to the trumpets. There's so much significance to, to so many things in here. The, the seven priests taking seven trumpets for seven days and then seven times around the city on the seventh day. We could talk for a long time about that. You have no idea the self-discipline I'm exercising up here <laughs> to not keep you till 2 o'clock every Sunday. Right. Well, it's not all right for the babies back there in the, in the back. That's the thing. You got goldfish for them? See, Jaron, the man with the plan, always. <laughs> Except I'll be the one to get the calls and the emails, not you. So, Well, that's, there's so much here. But can you imagine the volume of the shout that erupted? You ever, you ever had anything that's just been pent up inside? It's just built up inside like one of those old pressure cookers. You remember those when you were a kid? That little thing would rattle on the top. I was terrified as a kid that that was going to explode and send metal shrapnel all over the kitchen. It never did. I, I don't understand how. Maybe I don't understand physics quite as good as I thought. But it's this, it was this buildup of pressure. And there are these people on day seven. They marched around the city seven times. And now I imagine the whole psychological warfare got flipped onto the people in Jericho because they were freaking out now. Like day seven, oh, here we go again. Well, they'll be gone in a minute. What's that? They're going again and again? How many times is this? Four? Seven? Uh-oh. You know what? Seven. Seven's a big thing, right? And then the trumpets blew. And the people shouted. And it wasn't the trumpets, it wasn't their shout, it was the Lord that won the victory. But the people had to obey by faith for the Lord to do what he said he would do. And when they did obey, the city walls collapsed. That immovable object was moved. And here's what we see for the hundredth time in our journey through the Bible so far. We see that God will do exactly what he said he will do every time. We just need to trust him and obey him. But here's what I really want to focus on for just the last little bit here this morning, like the last hour and a half. I'm kidding. There's a look of horror there on her face. Here's what I really want us to see. There's something so much bigger taking place here than just the Battle of Jericho. The question is often asked, and I'm about to open a can of worms here. If you've never explored this subject, then uh, welcome in today. I hope this will be an encouragement to you in God's own unique way. The question is often asked, why would God be so cruel as to allow an entire city to be utterly destroyed? What kind of a God is that? I would never trust a God. I would never believe in a God who would allow innocent people to be killed. It sounds like a great question, and it sounds like perhaps the death blow to the Bible, but it's, it's far from that, because the question is fundamentally flawed. 
As I've done many times already in this series, I refer you back to the early chapters of Genesis where God set in place his unchanging laws of the universe. Genesis is so important for everything in our life today. If someone says to you, who says it's wrong for me to sleep around outside my marriage? Well, what are you going to go to for that? Just because, I, I don't know, my mom said it's wrong. Well, good on your mom. What's she going to? Why is it wrong for me to cheat from people at work, to steal, to cut corners? Why is that wrong? Based on what? Folks, it's all based on God's immutable laws that he set down at the beginning of time. Everything that is right comes from that. Our entire justice system, all of it comes from the heart of God. If that foundation is removed, we're done. You understand? We're done. And here in Joshua 6, we see one of God's eternal laws being played out once again, and it's exactly what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Far too many people read the Bible without that fundamental understanding in place, and they walk away thinking that God indiscriminately dishes out judgment on poor, unsuspecting people depending on the mood he's in that day. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. We need to understand God has made this truth, the truth about himself, the truth about right and wrong, the truth about the punishment that's coming for sin for everyone. God has made this truth about himself known to every individual who has ever been born, and every person has had a chance to repent. Now, don't ask me to, to map out exactly how that works with every person in every age, in every culture, in every part of the world, because I can't. We're so stuck in our American Sunday school growing up mentality that that's how we learn the truth. Listen, God can teach his truth to someone who's never seen a Bible and never will in their lifetime. We've met people overseas in Africa, out in the middle of nowhere, and you begin conversations with them. They've never been to church. They've never had a Bible. They've never read the Bible. But you be begin talking to them about God, and they go, they know. God has made his truth known to everyone, and he's given everyone an opportunity to repent. How do I know this? Quickly, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. These are key scriptures we need to really, really get into our, into our mind and our heart. Listen to this. This is so powerful, so revealing. Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And as we witness the destruction of Jericho here in Joshua chapter 6, 
We're seeing the immutable law of God having an effect upon not, not on people who never heard the truth. No. We're seeing it play out and have its full effect on people who willfully shook their fist at God's offer of mercy and forgiveness. How do we know that? Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at Rahab back in Joshua chapter 2. She was a resident of, uh, of Jericho, and she was a sinner, the Bible tells us, just like everyone in Jericho, just like all of us. Rahab said that the people of Jericho had heard about the mighty power of God and his mighty miracles. They had heard about how God had already destroyed wicked cities who refused to repent, and that this news had put fear into the hearts of everyone in Jericho, Rahab told us. Their hearts were melting with fear at this news of God and God's coming judgment. But still, they all refused to repent, except for Rahab and her family. I suppose if there was any city since Sodom and Gomorrah that we looked at a, a long time ago that was bent on its own destruction, it would be Jericho. Jericho, I think, highlights not only sin, but it highlights the deceptive nature of sin. You can look this up and research some of this on your own. Time won't permit today, but Jericho was known as the city of palms. It was an oasis. It was an oasis of pleasure. It was an oasis of luxury. It was an oasis of security. But despite all that, it was a city that was facing the judgment of God because they continued to reject him. And listen, this judgment didn't come on them overnight. We must understand this. God didn't wake up on a Friday and say, hmm, who can I smite today? That's nonsense. God had given them a very, very long time to repent. I don't have a slide for this, but 1516, way back when God was talking to Abraham and telling him about this land that his ancestors were going to possess one day, God makes this seemingly strange-sounding statement. He said, speaking of the people in this land, including Jericho, he said, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or complete. Wow. Chew on that one for a while. The iniquity of the Amorites, in God's eyes, the sin of all these people in the promised land, has not reached its full capacity yet. The New Testament tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, it talks about people who, quote, always fill up the measure of their sins and wrath comes upon them at last, end quote. What is this saying? Listen, it's saying that God is very patient with sinners. He gives them every opportunity to turn to him. He delays and delays and delays his judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 reminds us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand sl slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the heart of God. How dare we assume for a minute that God is an angry, hateful, impatient, unkind, unloving God. God delays and delays and delays that immutable law that was set in place in the beginning that cannot be broken. We understand if God is God, his law cannot be broken ever, not even by him. 
It must take effect. But it's as though God, I'm not being irreverent, I'm just trying to put it into a mental picture. It's as though this floodwater of judgment is coming. It has to come. And it's as though God is standing there holding it back, looking at at the people of the world saying, repent, repent. And the people are going, nah, we're good. Despite God's patient calls to repent, some people simply refuse to do so. Revelation 2.21, the Lord said, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, but she did not repent. This didn't happen to Jericho overnight. This didn't happen on a whim. History tells us that Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world. They had carried on their sin for centuries without facing the judgment of God. In fact, it was at this, at this point, surely by this time, after all these centuries of sin, they must have laughed at the notion of ever facing judgment for their sin. It hadn't happened yet. But the time finally came when their sin reached its full measure and judgment fell on them. Listen, don't ever assume that because the penalty for your sin is being delayed, that you've escaped judgment. You should never interpret the delay as anything but God's mercy. Look at Jericho and you realize that God's patience with them is the same as it is with us. He's giving us repeated opportunities to repent. But listen to me. And this is where things get a little tough for some people. Listen, there's coming a day when God's patience will end. That's why the Bible gives this and, and many other warnings. Like Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. What does that tell us? By simple, basic understanding, it tells us there is coming a time when people will seek him and he will not be able to be found. The flood that happened that we studied last year was not just a random event. This was a picture of what is going to happen to all mankind. Noah preached and preached and preached repentance, and the people thumbed their noses at him and said, what an idiot, what a moron. A flood is coming. It's never even rained, dude. And then the rains began to fall, and the floodwaters began to rise. Noah and his family went into the ark, and it says, it says, God shut the door. God shut the door. Why? Because God's patience had come to an end with that generation. He had given them years and years and years of hearing the truth. But there comes a point when, as the Bible says, some people are bent on rebellion and they waste away in their sin. Please don't let that be true of you. How foolish that would be. What an epitaph that would be on anyone's life. God's judgment against Jericho was delayed for centuries, and and it, it, it stood during all that time. Jericho stood during all that time as a seeming contradiction to the laws of God. But Jericho today is a pile of rubble. That once proud city is no more. It's gone. They had convinced themselves that they were secure, but it was an unfounded security. 
And the same is true, folks, for, for sinners who feel that by their own defenses, by their own logic, by their own sense of security, they're going to be okay. They're, they're going to escape what's happening to everybody else. They're going to be the exception. Listen, unsaved friend, you will not be the exception to God's immutable law. You will not be. I urge you to hear what I'm saying to you today if you're unsaved. The people of Jericho were confident in themselves, but they were not okay. No sinner can stand against the coming judgment of God. No one through his own efforts or his own schemes or his own attempts at goodness can save himself from the just wrath of God because the law of God still declares what it did in the beginning, that all who sin must die unless, unless they accept the forgiveness that God offers to them. Jericho is a terrifying warning for those who persist in their sin and refuse to repent. It's a warning of punishment. It's a warning of destruction. It's a warning of doom. You may be sitting pretty this morning. You maybe think you're smarter than God. You may think you've got it figured out, and you don't need what we're talking about this morning. But I'm not talking about my opinions. I'm talking about the unchangeable laws of God. No one has broken them, and no one ever will. And I say again for the second time, you will not be the first to do so. This is how God deals with sin. He is a holy God. But thankfully, that's not the only way he deals with sin. Because for all those who repent and turn to him, he no longer judges them for their sin. He forgives their sin. The judgment is very real, but there is hope. Jericho proclaims the message of justice. But listen, Jericho also proclaims the message of grace. And we saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at Rahab, the sinner in Jericho. She was just like everyone else. She was a lost, godless sinner. And you look at her, Rahab, the prostitute. What an unlikely candidate she was to receive God's grace. But isn't that the point of grace? Grace is for those who don't deserve it. God's grace comes to those who've done nothing to earn it. It extends to those who don't deserve it, a way of escape. What I want you to see this morning is that a far greater miracle than the walls of Jericho falling down was the salvation of Rahab. A far greater miracle. She heard God's message of truth. She believed by faith, and we, she was saved from the destruction of if there was ever a, where's this verse, Amos, I think, somewhere, Amos 4, maybe. If there was ever a stick that was snatched from the fire, it was Rahab. But aren't we all? Aren't you? Aren't I? A brand that was plucked from the fire, saved by grace through faith, saved from the judgment and destruction that we deserve. And yes, I say as I close that sin must still be punished or God is not a holy God. God is a God of justice and holiness and sin must be punished. But the good news of the gospel is this. 
that God has already judged your sins and mine in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, these astonishing words, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus not only died on a cross, his physical death on the cross was horrendous, but it was nothing compared to what he accomplished spiritually there. Because in addition to hanging and dying on that cross, Jesus bore the judgment for our sin so that all who put their faith in him will never have to bear that judgment themselves. The dust has settled long ago since the destruction of Jericho and that once proud city today is nothing more than a playground for archaeologists. But what happened to Jericho is a picture of the gospel. We see the warning of judgment against sin. We see the hope that God extends to those who are in sin. And we see the salvation God gives to all who turn to him by faith. I ask you as we pray, have you ever done that? You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.